Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of What the Forensics. I'm Rebecca, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Nicole and Journey. Today, we will be covering the case of Stephen Akinmural, as told by Nicole, and fingerprinting, which was essential in his capture, which will be explained by Journey today. Before we begin, we just want to give a listener's discretion that there is going to be discussions of assault and suicide in today's episode. So without further ado, I can't wait to learn more about him because I'm very unfamiliar with this case. Uh, Nicole, why don't we get started? Yeah, so his mother was from the Isle of Man in the United Kingdom, and his father was Nigerian. So Stephen Akinmural was born in 1977 or 78, sources vary, um, and he was raised by his mother and grandmother by the time he was six. So I guess his parents divorced before then, and at the time of six, he moved to the Isle of Man with his mom and his grandmother, and his dad was kind of out of the picture. There's not much known or I, that can be confirmed about his early life, but it was said that he got into fights at school, so had some mental health issues, as it said, apparently. And he was in and out of jail due to trouble he would get himself into. So this is kind of all that's known from his early life. He's not a very well-known serial killer or killer, I guess. Uh, when he turned 18, though, he moved off the island and he was working as a civil servant on the mainland. So he, this was now mainland, like United Kingdom, England. And he also worked as a barman at a local bar there. So getting into his murders, because his early life wasn't that interesting, um, it was said that a 75-year-old Jemima Cargill was suspected to have died in a house fire and nothing really came about this at the time. It was just more of a mystery. You know, it was an accidental fire. Then an elderly couple was found beaten to death. Um, they were found by one of their daughters in October of 1988 in Blackpool, United Kingdom. And this was the same resort area um, where the house fire was that killed Jemima Cargill. So 77-year-old Eric Boardman he was one of the victims along with his wife Joan who was 74 and at the crime scene a bloodied homemade kosh it's called was found at the scene so this is a thick or a heavy bat used to bludgeon to beat and the kosh that Akin mural used was made from batteries bound together so a fingerprint was actually lifted from this because it was bloody enough to have a print and this matched a print from Akin Mural. So after this murder, detectives learned that Akin Mural lived in the same resort and shared the flat with Cargill at the time. So uh, Jemima was, I guess, Akin Mural's landlady. Like, I'm not really sure what the dynamic was there, but they lived in the same flat resort house type place. Once this came to light, that fire was deemed another murder committed by Akin Mural. And then in February 1996, 68-year-old Dorothy Harris was found dead in her home back on the Isle of Man. So this was back where he grew up, with her house also burnt down. Again, originally considered an accident, but it was soon to be a deemed a homicide once light came about with Akin Mural. And it wasn't... In, yeah. And it wasn't because so many accidents go about houses burn down. They're like, ah, it was an yeah. accident. It happens. Just a common <laughs> theme of elderly people dying in house fires. It makes sense. It's okay. Yeah. And none of them are directly connected to him anyway. So no. Yeah, not at all. So it wasn't actually until they lifted his print that they started to connect the dots of previous deaths and his involvement. So there was another woman, Marjorie Ashton. She was strangled to death in 95, and Akin Mural is suspected of being the offender, but not linked, apparently. And once again, all of this started to happen, and points were starting to connect the dot kind of thing, the Isle of Man detectives began reopening cases dating back to 94, like 1994, to look at similarities that could link Akin Mural. So they saw a theme of elderly individuals dying in strange circumstances, a one being charged with whatever happened, and house fires. So they 
he's a suspect because of the fingerprint they found, right? There was it was only the fingerprint on the one crime scene, right? Yeah, so just the okay. one crime scene linked him to that one, and then detectives were just kind of like, "Oh, this seems fishy. This Familiar. seems very yes, very similar." It's late nineties. They were just like, "Yeah, he's the guy." All right, cool. I mean, not cool, but <laughs> interesting. Yeah. So he was arrested and charged with committing four homicides. So those of Jemima Cargill, Erica Joan Boardman, and Dorothy Harris. So the fingerprint left on the cosh was the primary evidence supporting his arrest. And not much else is known or like brought forward as evidence to link him to the crimes, I guess. And while he was being questioned, his demeanor was said to have changed very rapidly. So he'd be calm and polite one second, and then, like, flip of a switch, he would just be in a fit of rage that, like, scared detectives who were questioning him. One of the detectives actually said that he was, quote, one of the most dangerous men I have ever met, end quote. Wow. Yeah. That's scary. Yeah. And I'm not sure how many dangerous men this detective has seen, but... As a detective, I would assume there'd be a few on that list. Yeah, that's still quite the Mm -hmm. statement. Wow. Yeah. So while he was in jail awaiting trial, he injured one of his doctors extremely badly and made threats to the others. And he also made a claim that he had killed another person that the police haven't found yet. But it turned out to be a false claim or it wasn't true. Nothing came of it. So Akin Mural, unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, depends where you stand on this and his uh, person. He, Akin Mural, hung himself in his cell three weeks before his trial and was found on August 28th, 1999. Previous to this, he had tried to kill himself twice before, while his girlfriend had told the authorities that he was a danger to himself. So So maybe he should have been kept somewhere more secure. But on top of that, so going to what you said, Rebecca, he was interviewed by several medical staff specialists, said he was haunted by the images of his victims, and he's actually moved to a healthcare ward after one of his attempted suicides. But he moved back to a segregated unit because he made a weapon out of a toothbrush and talked about killing one of the female staff and taking her as hostage. Oh. oh. Yeah. So he was separated. And then they said... So they... Hmm. They tried to help him out. They tried. They tried. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So he was placed on suicide watch after this incident. But, again, problems with the system. He still managed to kill himself only two days after that. Wow. <laughs> yeah, two days. Okay, that, that's not great. It was a great suicide. No. Mm-hmm. I assume it's a good record for that um, establishment. Yep. And chillingly, um, it was said that he left a note for his mother before he took his own life, saying, quote, I couldn't take any more of feeling like how I do now. Always wanting to kill, end quote. I guess he just had a hatred to old people and just kept wanting to kill old people or just people regardless. But why old people? I don't know. There's nothing that I could find that like gave any mention or reason as to why. Like there's no family history. He was grown up with his grandmother and nothing was mentioned. Like maybe his grandmother was abusive. Nothing of that sort. Maybe it was because he grew up with his grandmother. Hmm. He's kind of like, okay, I don't like you anymore. I'm going to kill every old person that I come across. Seems a bit drastic. I feel like it's very common for people to be grown up by their grandparents. Yeah. And the ratio to those killing old people and those not killing old people. (laughs) Like, he could have done many different things other than... What he there did. are healthier coping mechanisms. Yeah, yes. healthier coping mechanisms. And lastly, there was another note found in his pocket. So after he died and they took his body doing autopsies, whatever they were doing, this note said, quote, 
I can't help the way I feel. What I did was wrong. I know that and I feel for them, but it doesn't mean I won't do it again. I'll keep on having this feeling. I'm going mad because I can't take any more of this. And that's why I'm saying goodbye. End quote. So he knew what he did was awful, but he figured the easiest way out was to take his own life. It's pretty sad, actually, that he's like, I feel really bad for what I'm doing, but I physically feel like I can't stop myself. Like, it's sad that, like, obviously he was a bad person, but if he had psychological help, maybe this wouldn't have happened. Yeah. And I think, like, if, I don't know what the prison systems are like in the UK, but, like, other prison systems are built and structured in a way to help individuals like that and like really focus on getting them back into society whereas I know American prison systems and some other ones are just to detain and keep them locked up so I feel like that could have been a reason why too like if the system like was like that maybe he had no other option it was either being locked up and getting into fights and possibly killing people or taking his own life unfortunately Do you think, I just want to speculate, do you think he had um, dissociative identity disorder? And oh, that's I think it's he, possible. That's why he got into those, like, quick rages and why he's like, I feel so bad, but I can't stop. Yeah. Because someone a, else is killing. That's oh. a good theory. That kind of just popped into my head. I have absolutely no evidential basis for it. <laughs> We're not psychiatrists. But it kind of makes sense. It does. It does. While he was in prison, he was um, interviewed by, like, a forensic psychologist or psychiatrist, like, all of these individuals. And, yeah, they said that he was haunted by the images of his victims. So if that's the case, maybe Stephen hates what he had done, but then Stephen 2.0, maybe he's the one that's... Or do you think, like, his haunting of the images of his victims, do you think he took on, like, their personalities? Because isn't it, like, <laughs> okay, okay, like okay. normally okay. <laughs> you, like, a that traumatic brings out, a, like, creates another personality? Do you think each of those traumatic events creates another personality that Maybe then is haunting him? Yeah. That's an old like movie-type shit right there. <laughs> They're <laughs> old people. Oh my gosh. Okay, Can that's you too imagine much. Imagine if he right. took on these people's personalities and he just starts like walking like an old person and he's like, This is me now. <laughs> he sings. Old people talk, they just sing. <laughs> I guess so. That's that's just my view of every old person. Every old person. At least it's they sing and they're not. <laughs> they're all jolly. They're all jolly jolly so that's all i've got for him he he is interesting not as interesting as other people but um without that fingerprint he may have never been caught he may have started killing more old people exactly all right well thank you nicole uh that was very interesting he definitely has more of an unknown history than some of the past killers that we've covered but it's very interesting how instrumental one fingerprint was uh for catching him so journey would you care to tell us a little bit more about fingerprinting you betcha so (laughs) i'm gonna talk about obviously fingerprints how they connect to this case and then i'm gonna tell you a bit about like their background how they came to be used in forensics how fingerprint analysis and comparison works and then we're gonna discuss some of the issues with the discipline And when I wrote this up, I kind of left a lot of room for discussion, so please feel free to jump in. Fingerprints, obviously, were the key evidence in this case. And unfortunately, he died before um, he went to trial. So we won't ever know if there's more evidence or the importance of the fingerprints that they found. Um, So like Nicole said, his fingerprints were found on the kosh that he used to kill Eric Boardman. And the kosh is like a weapon used to bludgeon. Um, And so it's theorized that because Eric Boardman fought back when he was being attacked, it was enough to, like, throw him off his game. And he ended up leaving the incriminating evidence at the scene. His M.O. is burning the place down after he kills people, but he didn't do that in this case. And, like, thankfully he didn't. Otherwise, he may never have been caught. 
Um, so yeah, thankfully Eric Boardman fought back and he was able to leave his fingerprints and his weapon and everything at the scene of the crime. One that Nicole kind of mentioned. And um, in the source that I read, it said that he buried said person by a cliff. And then the police officers went and investigated and they found a gun with his fingerprints on it, but no body. And so no one knows why he confessed to this or like how true it actually is. And I'm really curious why the gun was there and why it had his fingerprints on it if it wasn't used to kill someone. Like, he uses a cosh to, like, beat them and then burn their house down. He doesn't use guns. Yeah, that's very confusing. Maybe he just likes to carry them. Maybe. Maybe (laughs) it's just a threat. (laughs) Yeah, so like, But I got it. Yeah, I have it. So, yeah, anyway, they suspect that this story was just told to, like, mislead the cops and kind of just put them over there, even though he gave them evidence with his fingerprints on it. Anyway. Wait, so nothing came from that gun? Like, they found a gun and they were like, oh, yeah, it's a gun with his prints, but we're not going to try and link it to anything? They couldn't find a body to link it to. But could they have done, like ballistics or anything of that well i guess you they couldn't do but it they didn't have anything have a body. to yeah so they just have this gun what's the story so sorry no where gun. was this gun found again um by the cliff by right cliff. okay yeah. sorry did they check off the cliff? random gun yeah he was just but, like okay so i killed and buried someone by this cliff i can't remember what it's was or even if they gave me specifics um and they just went and they searched it and they found a gun and no body anywhere and i don't know what was on the bottom of the cliff if it was just like water or more land but interesting very weird nonetheless did you in your source too um where eric boardman when he fought back one mm-hmm. of the sources I heard that he, after his death, he was actually awarded with, like, a medal of, of bravery or something like that because of his fight back. Like, he fought really hard back, and that's what allowed that fingerprint to catch him. Wow. Yeah, no, I saw that, too. I thought that was really, really interesting. Yeah. You go, Eric Boardman. You go. Yeah. Right? Thank you for helping us catch a serial killer. Okay, so yeah, fingerprints were used in this case. There was not a lot known with them because they never went to trial. Um, so now I'm going to talk a bit about the background of fingerprinting. Um, fingerprints have been used since the 1850s, um, but in this case, it was more handprints that were used as a form of like signatures if you couldn't write. And it was actually William Herschel that came up with this idea, and he also monitored his fingerprints for 57 years and learned that they don't change as we get older which is kind of interesting that's kind of a cool experiment yeah that's a long one was there a reason he did this or was that out of pure interest he's like do these things change (laughs) I, i think it was pure interest to be honest with you but anyway super interesting and led to a lot of development in like the discipline of fingerprints. So how, I know you said that they can use handprints as signatures. How would they confirm that that handprint was from someone? Would they like have them put their hand over top? Would they do a print beside it? Because I would assume most handprints look similar. Honestly, I have no idea. Maybe it's just the size of the hand. I don't know. I'm just going on a tangent. The same, like I assume, the three of us have very similar sized hands. Yeah, maybe it's just like, like the different like crease placements or um, scars. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I think I don't think they ever just like like verified it. I think they were just like, "Okay, handprint, boom, this is the sign." I feel like it was probably similar to, like, how we use signatures now. It's like, we have to sign so much. But is someone actually sitting behind a desk and going, okay, this matches the signature that she gave us last year. So we can confirm it's her. 
or do you think it was it's it's just like oh you're in you're here in person and don't know how to write your name great just give us your name (laughs) yeah I think that was it okay another question um what if you had no hands do you (laughs) do you have to use like footprints like are you going around stamping documents with your feet I was just gonna Probably. be mean and say they're just using their nub. But... <laughs> I mean, but it that's... is a very, very distinct <laughs> signature at that point. That's true. That's true. Because technically, they can't write. But I'll, maybe like someone else like signed for it <laughs> on behalf of the person who has no hands. Or There's else so they use many questions. About how yeah, they I, signatures in the 1850s. <laughs> and I have no answers. Because I guess that there's also the question of how many people in the 1850s were alive with no hands? Like, were they born that way? Because I assume there's too much infection and risk of cutting them off. <laughs> oh, yeah, maybe they didn't live past that. Anyways, <laughs> aside from this little no hands tangent we went on... <laughs> Um, what was the new next development in said science journey? Okay, so in 1891, Juan Vustich, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, um, came up with the first fingerprint classification system, um, which was basically the Birdion system with fingerprints. And so the Birdion system is a system of like anthropometry where 11 body measurements are taken, as well as a mugshot, and that's used to basically individualize and identify suspects. Obviously, there's a lot of issues with that, but we're not going to get into that. And then in um, 1897, Edward Henry proposed what is now the basis for classification that we have right now. And then um, the actual use of fingerprinting in forensic cases was developed by Sir Francis Galton in 1901 after the Will West case. And so, the Will West case. In 1903, Will West went to turn himself in for a minor crime, or he went to the local penitentiary. I don't know if he was arrested or not. And when they pulled what they thought was his Burdeon system card, they found that a William West was already there serving a crime for first-degree murder. And the pictures of them look identical like like they look so similar they have the same name so it's not surprising that they got mixed up but still it's not that reliable and probably wouldn't have happened if fingerprints were on file which is kind of what sir francis galton was like hey maybe have a more reliable method of identifying people Mm so Um, what are the sorry what are the chances though like say we were still on this system these system cards yeah if you were to be like hey like I kind of hit someone with my car I'm turning myself in if someone were to check your your card and be like oh there's another journey or another Rebecca like serving time you're free to go or do they both go in do they like well because it was different crimes they kind of had to do like extra research and be like, hey, this is weird. There's two people with exactly the same names and faces in this penitentiary. But like, we maybe need to update our system. Do you think there's another Rebecca Journey or Nicole that looks identical to us? Apparently, everybody has at least seven doppelgangers or like seven people that look like us on the earth but what about names though because the chances of them being in the same area with the same name of will west or william west looking the exact same both I feel like that's crimes pretty unlikely i feel like that's pretty unlikely is it a conspiracy <laughs> theory is this something the government is this why fingerprints started all because of the conspiracy theory <gasps> Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> We're, We're going down some rabbit holes today. <laughs> so anyway, what are fingerprints? So fingerprints are made of, they're just friction ridges on our hands and feet. 
And they are formed in utero by the amniotic fluid, which is why everyone's are different, because everyone obviously moves differently in the womb. And I thought that was so, so cool, because I had no idea that your fingerprints were formed in utero. Like, that's very interesting to me. And so by the time a fetus is six months old, their fingerprints are actually fully formed, and they will never change until they die. I think that's crazy that we literally only have these for friction. Yeah. Like it's like we to grab stuff and we get wrinkly in water because friction. Like we get wrinkly and pruny because it increases our friction underwater. I think that's crazy. Right? So that if these are developed in utero yeah. with twins or triplets, however many lits you have, <laughs> how <laughs> how different would their fingerprints be? Because I know that they're all still di- moving differently in utero, but would they share some similarities or none at all? Don't... I think they're still quite different because they're still moving different and like it's fluid. So it's yeah. changing. I think they're still fairly different. I can't remember because I was looking back at our lectures from this and I know that we had talked about it, but I didn't have any notes on it. Because I know that they're not identical. Yeah. I know that they had, are. I'm just curious as to how similar they would be. I had no idea that monozygotic twins didn't share fingerprints. Mm-hmm. My mind is blown. Yeah. <laughs> they oh are different. But with that, no. I'm thinking of it a says, case where one twin was convicted of something, but it happened to be the other twin, and they used some evidence. But I, now that I think about it, I think it was like DNA, not fingerprints. So that was kind of yeah. If they're identical twins, they have like identical DNA. Okay. According to Washington State, even though fingerprints of the identical twins are very are very similar, they're not identical. Okay. So apparently, they are quite similar, but there's differences. Interesting. Interesting. All right. So, like Rebecca said, these friction ridges allow us to like hold things and be identified when we commit a crime. So, um, it's our pores in the middle of these ridges that um, makes the fingerprint. So, it's like the sweat and the oils coming from these pores that's on the surface that we collect the fingerprint from, which is both interesting and really gross. <laughs> and in order to change your fingerprints, you have to damage past your dermal papillae um, in order to leave a scar. And so, there's like three layers you have the epidermis, the dermis, and the hypodermis of your skin. And so the epidermis has your seven layers of skin. It's the the topmost layer. And then you have the dermis underneath it and then the hypodermis underneath the dermis. And so you'd have to damage or like get rid of your entire epidermis or like top layer of your skin in order to remove your fingerprints. So you need to badly burn it. So cut your finger off. Just, just cut off, essentially. Just cut your fingers off. Great. But then if you commit a crime and you're like, okay, this person's fingers are like really short. They're obviously missing the tips of their fingers. That's <laughs> very identifiable. Well, what was the, so, the mobster's name who tried burning his fingertips off with acid? And then obviously his fingerprints had scar marks on it and they could be identified as him yeah he was still identifiable because how many people don't have fingerprints on their fingers <laughs> exactly it was john dillinger okay he was yeah, like yeah. Ass, ass murderer i think wasn't he yeah, yeah. I so. anyway um yeah he did that and it's still obviously very identifiable um so the whole reason we start looking at fingerprints is the idea that no two fingerprints have been found to have the same characteristics. And so of course there's been no research to prove this because not everyone's going to be like, okay, you can have my fingerprints to compare for science to see if everyone has the same fingerprints or not. So we're kind of just going off of the fingerprints that we've collected and people working in like government agencies where you're required to have your fingerprints. And another thing with that is how many characteristics have to match in order for fingerprints to be the same. And so there's a whole bunch of questions with this, which I'll get into later. Now I'm going to talk about how prints are collected. And so uh, fingerprints can be collected from virtually any surface. However, the smoother the surface, the better. 
I found that when we were taking fingerprints in our lab, you could not take a fingerprint from a piece of wood. It was so, so difficult. And I don't it's know if so my hard. fingerprints were... Yeah, right? I don't know if my hands weren't sweaty enough, but I could not find a fingerprint on that thing for the life of me. <laughs> I think it Let was a me... mix of, like, the striations in the wood plus, like, how porous it is. So it just friggin' absorbs all the oil from our hands. That was my guess. Let me tell Obviously, you. I don't know. I have the sweatiest hands ever, and I could not get a print off of wood. No matter the type of wood, no matter if it was, like, what is it, pressed or, like, untreated. Cured. Yeah, no print. You just get the wood markings. Maybe, like, the outline at the top of your finger, but that was it. I mean, maybe it's just because we didn't have the right techniques because we're students, but it's pretty hard. It's pretty hard. So, so moral of the story, use wood as weapons. <laughs> I was going to be like, well, take this information how you want, but we're not saying yeah. to use this method. Anyway, don't kill people. That's bad. Um... <laughs> So, when crime scene investigators suspect there's a print somewhere, they have a plethora of powders and chemicals to collect it. And in class, we got to use black powders, magnetic, not like explosive black powders, just actual black (laughs) powders, magnetic powders, fluorescent powders, and white powders. And then, so each of these powders is useful on different surfaces. So, for example, if you have a fingerprint on a black car, Using white powder instead of the black powder will make it easily visible to the naked eye. And then you can use either clear tape or the fancy lifting tape stuff that you can get to lift the print. It's really cool. It has, like, um, the paper is, like, pre-attached to the tape. I don't know how to explain it, and I can't remember the name of it. So I've got... I think it's your thumbprint journey on that lifting tape. I'll put it in our source images just so you can see. Because it's like a square of paper that you peel the tape off, lift it, and then you like fold it back down onto the paper. Yeah, it's just easier than lifting it with tape and then putting it onto a different piece of paper. It's just all in And then with fluorescent powders, you can only take a picture of the print because it's difficult to actually lift the print because you need it to fluoresce in order to see it. So you don't really like know where it is until you shine the flashlight on it, get it to fluoresce, and then you take a picture of it, and then you analyze it that way. And the coolest lifting technique is the cyanoacrylate technique, or which is super glue. And so with this one, you just basically fumigate your fingerprint with gaseous super glue. And then it sticks to the fingerprints and the kind of reaction between the superglue and the sweat that is making the fingerprints creates a white powder that sticks to the friction ridges that have been left on that surface, which is really, really cool. And so we also got cool. to do that. Wasn't it like the sweatier the print, the more noticeable it was? Yeah, yeah it was like the more oily yeah. sort of thing. Which it was cool. We got to do that in class. And it kind of worked, but it kind of also didn't. Well, we didn't have the proper, like, we did it in, what, two days? Like, it didn't have yeah, the proper chamber. We literally put in, like, a plastic Tupperware with the tinfoil and the fuse. Yeah. I'm sure there's other ways, better ways to do that. There's def- there definitely is. But, hey, it was really <laughs> neat to experience. <laughs> Now we have our fingerprints, but how do we compare them? So the most common technique is the ACE-B system to analyze prints. And ACE-B stands for analysis, which obviously you assess the quality and quantity of detail of your lifted fingerprint. And then you compare them. So you have a side-by-side comparison between the question print and the lifted print. So you have you compare the suspect to, if you have a suspect, to the um, print that you took from the scene. And in Canada, when we're analyzing prints, we go from ridge to ridge and compare landmark to landmark, starting from the core, which is the very middle of your print, and then working outwards. Um, I'll talk about this a bit more later on. And so, and then you 
evaluate it, which is exactly what it sounds like. You decide if the print is inconclusive, so it, there's not enough information known about this print to match it. Um, you can exclude it, so it's obviously not this person, it doesn't match at all, or it's an individualization, it does match this print. Then we have verification, which is getting a second opinion on your conclusion. And this is where we're finding a lot of issues right now because a lot of people don't agree with others' conclusions. And so even if you show the same prints to the same examiner, they won't always come to the same conclusion, which is a massive, massive issue in forensic science when everything needs to be repeatable and reliable and like the same because you don't want to give a print to someone and they're like, okay, yeah, this is Rebecca. And then you give it to someone else like, okay, no, this is Nicole. Or, and then you give it back to the person who said it was Rebecca and they're like, no, no, this is actually Journey. You're like, yeah. okay, please, can you make up your mind? Like, this is someone's <laughs> life we're yeah. kind of talking about here. Anyway, it's unfortunately oh, very subjective. Yeah. Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for, subjective. Um, and so when we're analyzing fingerprints, we look at three different levels of characteristics. And so the first level is patterns. And a lot of prints share these patterns. So you can't identify or individualize with just the level one characteristics. And so the main three patterns are loops, whirls, and arches. I'm going to post pictures of each of these so you guys know what we're talking about. Um, but they look exactly how you think they look. And arches are the rarest type of pattern with only 5% of people having them. And I'm actually part of the 5%, not to break. Wow. I, I know I have a tented arch, which is like the most rare. Only one though, so, but that's okay. And so you can have a plain arch, a tented arch, um, right and left loops, central pocket loops and double loops. So there's different variations of these three, but they're still not enough to individualize because there's only three that you share. And then level two is minutia. And so these, this is the ridge characteristics that make fingerprints unique. So like the number of ridges, the type, the location of certain characteristics such as bifurcations, which is splitting of the ridges. So they kind of like fork off. And then enclosures, which are pretty much just like bubbles well, not really bubbles. Um, so it's like one line forks off, but then reconnects into one line. Yes, thank you. And then cores, which is like the middle of the print. So that's how you know kind of where to start. Um, ridge endings, exactly what they sound like. Deltas are little triangles that are very important characteristics of whirls and of loops. Um, you cannot classify something as a whirl or a loop without a delta. And so it's the most kind of important. It's just a little triangle off to the side. You could probably find it. It's very interesting. Um, and then islands and dots are just little dots of ridges um, that vary in length. So islands are a bit bigger than dots, obviously. And then you have the short ridges, which again, exactly what they sound like. And then you can individualize with level two characteristics. However, there is a dispute right now over how many of these characteristics are needed to make a match. Um, again, I talk about that a bit later on. And then lastly, we have level three, which is pores and ridges. So this is things like ridge shapes, thickness, finger creases, and incipient ridges, which are thin ridges that lack pores. Um, this is really interesting because you can clearly see creases on your prints, which is very, very cool. And creases can also be used to identify fingerprints or identify people because um, everyone has creases in different spots. But it's very, again, quite difficult because there's no real standard to it. Journey, you have very creasy thumbs, don't you? Yes. If I remember correctly. <laughs> I sure do. Look. If I know you guys obviously can't see us, but we're on Microsoft Teams and all three of us are just staring at our <laughs> fingers right now, trying to go through and see what we've got. Right. I'll be like holding my boyfriend's hand. I'll like grab his hand. I'll be like examining his fingerprints. Like I do the same thing. <laughs> and I'm like, look, you have two deltas. 
He's like, like, what the hell are you talking about? At this point, he's very used to it, and it's it's okay. Anyway, so um, as you guys may have guessed, we got to take and analyze our own fingerprints in our forensics course, and it was so cool and so hard. I am so bad at rolling my own fingerprints, and I have just like a sheet of paper in my bedroom of my attempts. Yep. Um. Anyway, yeah, and then we had to take home our fingerprints and analyze them, and let me tell you, that was so difficult without a magnifying glass. I like, thought that fingerprinting was would be super, like, I say it is interesting, but I thought it was going to be, like, super, like, cool and interesting and it was going to be so exciting and then I got onto my computer to analyze them and I was just like my eyes were burning trying to find little individual characteristics from a black and white print right and we took like good prints like usually in like a crime scene the prints are not as good as what we took and so to try and match these fingerprints oh my goodness it would have been awful well, because, like, for us, we were going through and, like, actively rolling left to right, putting even pressure, whereas in crime scene cases, like, if I'm robbing someone, I'm not just going to be like, oh, let me grab this, roll my thumb, okay, and now I'm going. Like, you <laughs> grab it, go. You're not, like, it's not yeah. a perfect print. Yeah, exactly. And then, yeah, because we didn't have magnifying glasses, I just took a picture of my print and, like, put it on my computer and just zoomed in. I was like, yeah, science. (laughs) It was so difficult. And so um, now I'm going to talk a bit about APHIS. And so APHIS stands for the Automated Fingerprint Identification System, which is our database where all our fingerprints are held. And so you submit your print to APHIS and then it gives you like X amount of possible matches back and then a human examiner has to go through each of these possible matches and compare them to the the suspects or no, the lifted print from the crime scene to determine whether or not they are matches and it saves so much time because the examiner doesn't have to go through and decide what fingerprints are potential matches and then figure out if they are matches like it just it makes it a lot easier for the examiners mm-hmm. which is kind of nice fingerprints have come under a bit of scrutiny since the brandon mayfield case where his fingerprints were misidentified as matching the ones found on the bomb shrapnel from the 2004 madrid bombings and so right now The main issue with fingerprint examination is that it's highly subjective and different examiners may come to different conclusions, which you don't want and which we kind of touched on already. Um, And there's no standard number of characteristics that constitute a match. So some countries use six. You only need six matching characteristics in a fingerprint and some use 16. So there's quite a difference with that. And um forensic scientists right now are really pushing um to kind of learn how true the statement of no two fingerprints are the same they kind of want to figure out how accurate is that how many people have the potential to have similar fingerprints and they just want to make it as reliable as possible of course it's nowhere near as unreliable as other disciplines like bite mark analysis but it can still be improved which is kind of what we're pushing for. Don't get me started on bite mark analysis. Yeah. That is a rant for another day. Yep. And that is the end of my TED Talk. Nice. And going back to, like, the shapes of fingerprints, it starts in the center, right? So your core determines if you have a whorl, a loop, or an arch. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay, so... If you aren't able to look on our webpage at the images that Journey has provided, an arch, as it sounds like, it goes from the left side up kind of like a hill down to the right. A loop. What does a loop look like? Let me let me reference this. 
a loop is just the same. It goes, it can go from the left, it kind of goes up, and then it loops back down and goes back out the left, or it can come from the right, go up, and then loop around and come back out the right. Right. So with the loop, um, that's her journey when she mentioned the deltas. You have one delta in a loop, and then two in whirl. Two in a whirl. So a whirl, like, is basically just a... It's like a spiral. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And you'll see those little, like, delta ridges on the left and the right side where three... You'll, it's kind of like a triangle. If you look at your fingerprints yeah. and you have whirls, it joins in, like, three different directions. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Journey, for that very interesting talk on fingerprints. We learned a lot, and we hope that you did, too. It really taught us a lot about how active murals prints were used to catch him. And now I believe Nicole has a current event to share with us uh, as we sometimes share current events in forensic science that have been happening. I was looking on the news and I found an article saying that Dorset police, so in the United Kingdom, they're going to become the first ones in the country to use new technologies to allow crime scene investigators to transfer fingerprints from crime scenes to the fingerprint bureau, like right then and there. So this can achieve identification in minutes to hours rather than days to weeks. So if they've got a fingerprint, I don't know the technology because it's fairly new, but I guess it scans it. They transfer it onto some sort of screen that gets auto- like automatically transferred to whatever database they have. So if it's APHIS or any of that, and then they can get a match or a hit, however you want to call it, um, fairly quickly. That That's crazy. Really cool. So I don't know what the limitations are going to be with this, because I could assume that there's going to be some problems trying to scan it. Because my I know my printer scanner is not the best, especially with fine details. So unless they've got, well, probably, they, I assume they have a huge budget, but... They'll need the best of the best for scanners. Do you think that they're kind of like, do you think they'd have to use the powder to make the print visible? And then do you think they'd like 3D scan it or like use a 3D scanner? Because they're using 3D scanners right now. Um, or I read a paper about using 3D scanners to analyze footwear impressions. So I don't oh. know. Oh, I heard about that. Thing. Maybe. If they use powder, there'd be limitations in the in the sense that they couldn't use fluorescence powders. And I assume they could use chemicals, but typically that's done back in the lab. Yeah. So I guess it just, it'll it'll depend on how good the print is, but I'm curious to see what comes of it. Cause like this, this article I found, it was published October 26th of this year. So it hasn't even been a month. Wow, so very recent. Oh, wow. So it's very recent, yeah. That's really cool. So yeah. hopefully in the coming weeks and months, we'll hear more about it and its successes or its limitations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I just remembered a really fun fact about fingerprinting is you can actually transfer DNA from one fingerprint to another via the fingerprint brush, which is a massive source of contamination. So you can be like fingerprinting like suspect one or like fingerprint one, like dust it with a little brush and then you go to the other fingerprint to dust and you bring DNA from the first fingerprint to the second set of fingerprints. Yeah, for listeners that don't know the brush that we're talking about too, it's like this really light feathery brush, I guess. Like there's a couple different ones. You put a little powder on it, and then you see as in, like, CSI or whatever, they do the little spinny with their fingers or their hands. They get the powder on it, and that's And you're just, like, lightly brushing it, yeah. Yeah. That's crazy, because I know you can get touch DNA, like, secondhand transfer. Mm -hmm. Say I, like, like, shook your hand, my DNA could be found on your body. Like, trace evidence. Yeah. I didn't realize... Because there's not a lot of DNA in touch evidence at all. No, but there's just enough to contaminate it and completely throw off your DNA results. That's crazy. Yeah. How many 
how many scientists are using fingerprints for DNA, though? They're not. It's just, like, the surface. Oh, okay. Like, so if they do a swab close by, nearby, after. Yeah, I can, like, change it. And, like, none of the fingerprint techniques destroy the DNA that's there. Oh, okay. Which is very interesting and cool as well. Anyway, yeah. Interesting. Well, thank you, Nicole, for that current events topic. Hopefully we hear more about it in the future and see if it was a success or not. Um, Now we will be drawing our random number generator, just like we do every episode, uh, to be figuring out what our discussions will be on next week. So, Journey, would you care to pick a random number from our generator? Okay. Andy, Google, 1 to 150. (laughs) Come here, Mr. Google. Um, he gave me 116. So, The Big Book of Serial Killers by Jack Rosewood, which I severely recommend. That gives us Diego Henrique Gomez de da Rocha. We'll work on the pronunciation again. The last two have been a little brutal. Our apologies. But with a brief look, this case, although he wasn't caught because of ballistics, some of the evidence from a scene was matched to him that way through ballistics, I think. They did some testing. But we will have more about that two weeks from now. This is fairly new, too. Just quickly looking at the book. He was arrested in 2014. He was sentenced... Well, I guess we'll learn more about it. But he was sentenced to 564 years. Oh. Oh. That's enough. That's that's rough. Okay, well, I can't wait to discuss uh, Tiago in our next episode and ballistics. Uh, would one of you care to tell the audience where they can find us on social? Sure. Our beautiful listeners can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at What the Forensics, as well as our website, which is whatthefrensics.ca. There on our website, you can find source material, source images, our, a little bit about us, and our episodes are actually on our page as well. Our Twitter is WTForensicsPC. Journey, what's our email if people want to get a hold of us? Our email is whattheforensics at gmail.com. This has been another episode of What the Forensics. Uh, We are your hosts, Rebecca, Nicole, and Journey. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode, and we can't wait to share another episode in a couple of weeks. Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just students who are learning and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and we can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week.